Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Um, we are continuing with our series of rapid responses. And today we're talking about Germany aimed its role in the tensions escalating between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, as the United States and its NATO allies have continued to try to respond to this crisis, um, Tensions within the alliance have led some to question its unity. Uh, Germany's approach in particular has drawn increasing criticism in recent days. As last Friday, it came to light that Berlin had blocked Estonia from sending German-made howitzer artillery to Ukraine. And over the weekend, the head of the German Navy was forced to resign after he made statements suggesting that Crimea was lost to Ukraine and that Russian Vladimir Putin deserved respect. Um, Additionally, there continues to be uncertainty about the German government's willingness to abandon the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in the event of a Russian invasion, despite strong pressure from across the alliance to do so. So in light of all of this, we're very excited to welcome Constanza Stoltzenmuller and Jana Puglieren back to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure. All right, very quick bios, just for both. Constanza is an expert on German, European, and transatlantic foreign and security policy and strategy. She's the inaugural holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. And Jana is the head of the Berlin office and a senior policy fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, She directs ECFR's Reshape Global Europe project and has also advised the German Bundestag as an expert on arms control and non-proliferation. So I just really want to get um, and you know kind of throw open the floor um, and here maybe Constanza will start with you um, just for a little lay down of what's happening Berlin, um, what's happening politically, kind of how do we make, what's the context in which these decisions um, and announcements and Andrea, do me a favor. I'm sitting here in Washington together with you and Jim. I think that Jana is the person sitting in Berlin and is your primary source for that question. So I'm gonna defer to her. And if there's something that I, you know, some connection that I can make or context that I can add, I will do that. Is that putting you on the spot, Jana? I hope not. (laughs) That is, yeah, no, that is putting me on the spot. And I can say that it's a quite uncomfortable position now to be basically a Germany explainer based in Berlin and make sense of everything that comes out of our beautiful country. So, um, Andrea, um, so maybe first I start with good news. So. Recently, um, our Chancellor Olaf Scholz has given an interview to the Süddeutsche Zeitung um, and he um, was very much following um, up on his remarks, um, which he made previously when uh, Jens Stoltenberg visited Berlin. So um, he has strongly emphasized that Germany is part of the Western alliance, um, that um, we are aligned. Um, He condemns strongly Russian aggression. Um, He says that to keep NATO's um, kind of door open for enlargement, is a necessity. Uh, He says Russia has no right to request that NATO shuts this door. Um, And he strongly uh, confirms his commitment to the German-American agreement uh, that was made in July 2021 on um, Nord Stream 2 between the Merkel government and the US government back then. Um, So he says uh, on record that any military aggression will have high costs. Um, and he says Nord Stream 2 is included in a possible sanctions package. And I think this is the most crucial part because we have all been wondering for quite some time whether he 
would be ready to put this basically to the table. Uh, additionally, what also gave me hope is that um, our ministry, Minister for Defense, uh, Mrs. Lamprecht, who also had stressed that um, Nord Stream 2 was a purely political project um, a couple of weeks ago, now is backpedaling basically, and uh, she has changed her original position, um, as has Kevin Kühnert, who is the quite influential Secretary General of the SVD, who even publicly apologized for his previous remarks when he said that um, basically how we handled the Russia crisis and, and Nord Stream 2 were separate issues. So there is what I what I see is um, that the SPD is basically getting its act together um, and that they are back on messaging the right things. Um, and I think that is because the chancellor has positioned himself in a new um, in a new way. Still, um, I think he has been too timid or silent or whatever um, in, in the past and has not really been leading the debate uh, in, in Germany. I had the impression that everybody was basically saying whatever he or she had uh, on his or her mind. Um, and we had this cacophony of voices coming from Berlin that was, I think, very, very much uh, damaging our public image. Um, but I think there is hope. And I would start uh, yeah, on a hopeful note here. <laughs> And then we can discuss all the other events so, and remarks. I, I'm really glad that, yeah, that, that I, Jana, I apologize for putting you on the spot, but you actually said two things that I hadn't clocked simply because my phone has been ringing off the hook, which is the Lamprecht and Kunert backpedaling. That, that is really great. Didn't know that. Good. I'll have to look it up. Um, this is how it's been here for the past, past week or so. Um, let me add one good thing, and then if I may contextualize. So the other good thing that happened is, is that Annalena Baerbock went to Moscow to meet her counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, and gave a really for, forceful, tough, and, um, you know, uh, all-around good news performance. Um, the Russians tried to ambush her with questions about the, um, the Russian state-controlled TV network, Russia Today, now known as RT, not being allowed to broadcast in Berlin. Um, and by a, an RT reporter, and then somebody else apparently got up and said he was from a journalist union and he had a petition signed by a thousand people uh, calling for uh, Russian media to be allowed to permit to broadcast in, um, in, in Berlin. And uh, she handled that well. Um, in fact, basically cut off Lavrov and then left the meeting without shaking Lavrov's hand. Wow. Um, that's, I think, you know, I, I think was not what the Russian foreign ministry had been expecting from a rookie 40 year old German foreign minister. And that's good. I, everything else that 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 Jana um, just said, I subscribe to. But but here here is the, really the, the, the there is. And I think what we need to do now in contextualizing, separate out the policy questions from the communications questions. So let me go to policy first. We have, in terms of deterrence against, um, against Russian aggression, two main instruments, economic sanctions and weapons deliveries to Ukraine, right? Right. And reinforcing NATO security along, along the, the, the eastern border of NATO, right? That's where we, where we are. And my understanding is that the machine rooms of the security-relevant agency in Berlin 
the Chancery, the Foreign Ministry, and the Defense Ministry have been working on these things with Washington, with the NSC, with state and, and defense, and with their European counterparts for months now. And in close cooperation and a lot of mutual trust. These sanctions issues are extremely technical and require a great deal of coordination, particularly if they if we are looking at a calibrated proportional response to a Russian action that is below the level of an all-out invasion, in which case all bets are off anyway, right? But the it seems to me that the Russian strategy here is to hit our different kinds of pressure points as often as possible and as many as possible in order to keep us disunited, confused, and on our toes. And that is what makes coordinating these highly technical questions so difficult, which is why it's so important to maintain two things, messaging cohesion and ambiguity about what we do and when we do it. But we do need to know what we want to do among ourselves. So that, in my understanding, has, I think, been unobjectionable, although we all know that, that, and I think Washington knows as well, that there is an imbalance between the economic exposure to blowback between America, which would have very little exposure to blowback, and, which, and Europe, which would have a lot, and different European countries, which would have a lot more than others. And unfortunately, the two most vulnerable countries to economic blowback, for one, not just because of gas contracts, but because of financial relations and, 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 and manufacturing relations, are Germany and Italy. So the real question has been, how do we design a blowback mitigation strategy so, so that the blowback doesn't contribute to undermining cohesion? That's also really complex. And, um, Again, I think there has been a lot of conversation about this. A lot of people have been working about this. The question of weapons deliveries is the, and, let me, and I'll finish on that, and then we can perhaps separate out the messaging. On weapons deliveries, the problem here, Germany is, is that Germany is one of the biggest weapons exporters in the world. I think the third or fourth biggest. And we export to a lot of unsavory countries. And the center-left parties of Germany have, try, have been trying to get a grip on that for a very long time, for reasons that I can actually understand. But the problem is also that our weapons exports finance um, the, the armaments for our national armed forces. Specifically, they keep unit prices low. That's the conundrum here. That's why it's been so hard to get a grip on this. But the coalition agreement says, we will not export arms into conflict zones. Now, in my view, the, 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 the policy problem with this is that, that this, and this is what Annalena Baerbock was referencing in Moscow when she said, our coalition agreement says this, this is what the defense minister was referencing. My personal opinion is, and I'm going to guess that Jana shares it, is that this take does not uh, act adequately provide for a situation that isn't a civil war between Ukraine and Russia, but where you have a you know, so-so, but still democracy, in Ukraine being threatened by an authoritarian great power that, that apparently will stop at nothing and is making outrageous demands on us. So to suggest that if we give the Ukrainians weapons to defend themselves, that that will increase the tensions, 
massively misrepresents the situation that we're sending them into. And in my view, it would support deterrence. And this is where Jana was saying this, we, and, and you and, and Andrea mentioned it, Apparently, the German government um, said uh, tr tr uh, is trying to get the Estonians to not deliver German-made howitzers to to Kiev. In my view, that's a mistake. I think the additional problem is that um, Annalena Baerbock in Kiev referred to German history and said, because of the atrocities that we committed during the Second World War, we can now not deliver any weapons to Ukraine. And I think this is so wrong because looking at what Timothy Snyder called the bloodlands um, and who suffered from what yes. in the Second World War. I think Ukraine um, yeah, was, was the major victim. And so in the German debate, we tend to kind of, yeah, we tend to think that everything um, that happened to the um, Soviet Union is basically oh, equals Russia now. So we tend to forget other countries like Ukraine, but also Belarus, that have also been victims. And I think the argument was just so wrong because um, when, for example, Joschka Fischer uh, in the Kosovo War argued with history, he said there is a special responsibility also for us Germans to prevent um, things from happening, to prevent kind of that, that countries are, um, yeah, that, that they, they can be blackmailed or that, that just somebody can just come and annex them. And so I think that was a very difficult and for me not really convincing argument that Annalena Baerbock made. Okay. And the other point is on, on, on the ambiguity um, and the messaging and is that the problem is that we have been saying what we don't want to put to the table mostly. So we have for a long time um, excluded Nord Stream 2 and then um, now we exclude the, the weapon deliveries. Now we prevent Estonia from delivering well, or the, 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 the government would say, we, we haven't decided yet. That's the official narrative. Um, and, and even within NATO, I mean, um, there was this announcement um, kind of by NATO that, yeah, uh, that other countries were considering um, bigger commitments like uh, the, the, the Netherlands, um, Spain. And for Germany, I mean, Germany is already very committed to um, reassuring Eastern allies um, at the Eastern flank and does already a lot more than other European countries. But for me, the question is, did this new situation really change how Germany thinks about Russia or not? And that for me is a crucial question because I don't see, I mean, we are talking economic sanctions and Constantia is exactly right. That has been going on for a long time. And I think Germany is kind of, advanced uh, in this debate compared to other European countries when I look at the European debate and what's happening in, in Brussels. But still, I think the problem is that the world was looking at us and expecting signals from Germany and we were kind of busy telling the world what we wouldn't do and not what we would do. Although I think in the end we will do when it comes to it a lot. So I wanna, we'll come back to how this might change, but Jana, can you say just a couple of words of how kind of these recent events have been discussed um, by Germans? So in what, what is the domestic narrative around these events? Is there strong German support to do any of these things or are leaders kind of reflecting the interests of the vast majority of the German public? I, I, I you know, what does this debate look like domestically? Is there is there any push domestically to do more for Ukraine and somehow these kind of recent events stand in contrast to that or just give us so, a little um, insight? 
Yeah, if, if you look at some figures, for example, there was a, a poll uh, by a German very well-known research institute called Forza in January asking people about Nord Stream 2. And 60% of the German population still supports um, the, kind of the project and, and wants Nord Stream 2 uh, to operate. And also when it comes to the weapons deliveries, I think that, yeah, by and large, there is a huge skepticism in the German public. But I always argue that this is also a lack of leadership. I think the Germans have in the past demonstrated, like look at the Kosovo war and, and how Joschka Fischer got his own party, which was hugely divided on that uh, matter behind him. So I think if we had strong leaders making the case in the German public, arguing what is necessary and why, um, I think the German public wouldn't be the problem. May I come in here? Um, I, I, I think Jana's exactly right. Um, that's that's exactly where I would have headed with this. But just um, to recap the messaging issue here. Um, in the past 10 or 12 days, you had in succession senior figures from the parliamentary faction of the Social Democrats, who also are fielding the Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Um, and the parliamentary faction is quite left-wing. Um, saying, um, shall we say, unhelpful things about uh, the, 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 for example, that Nord Stream 2 had nothing to do with Ukraine, the remarks that Kevin Kuhnert, uh, the, uh, the, the leader of the SPD, had to apologize for later. Um, the defense minister, minister actually managed to hit the guardrails on both sides of the road by giving an interview and saying uh, that she had Putin in her sights, which was perhaps a tad more belligerent than was called for, but also saying that Nord Stream 2 should be left out of the Ukraine debate, which is just bizarre any way you look at it. Um, sadly, um, you then had the, um, just now on, elected on the weekend, chairman of the Christian Democrats, who are now in the opposition, Merkel's old party, um, saying that he felt quite strongly that excluding the Russians from SWIFT, the International Financial Payment Services, should not be on the table of economic sanctions. And then finally, you know, just to sort of complete the, the panorama of chaos, um, the minister president of Bavaria, who's also the leader of the Bavarian sister party, CSU, giving an extended um, interview to the to the Sunday version of the Frankfurter Allgemeine, the sort of leading conservative paper of record, in which he said things like Russia is our strategic partner and we don't want bad relations with Russia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and generally making a fool of itself himself. Um, and that was a case of people who actually aren't coordinating in the machine room over the course of two weeks you know, counteracting the work of the machine room and giving the impression to the larger global public that somehow there would, might be a mind meld between the actual government making the policy and, and this messaging. And the additional problem, of course, is that I'm guessing, you know, the, I, I think that there's a cliche out there that there is sort of broad spread, uh, widespread elite capture in, in, in Germany by Russia, which I think is, is incorrect. Um, most Germans know who they think is, has been captured, either ideologically or with checks. Um, and those people are a handful and they're actually less influential than you might think. Yeah? The much larger problem is that like here in America, um, domestic issues trump foreign policy by far, 
and that and that people have a very keen sense of what their base might want of them to focus on, and it's not foreign policy, and and that that gives them a very narrow bandwidth for permissible statements to make on foreign policy. That's what's been muddying the water. And that, of course, creates a feedback loop, not just between these people who all have constituencies that they're talking to and party bases, but there's a feedback loop between that, those you know, completely domestic conversations and the global conversation where people assume that this is also a statement of legitimate foreign policy. Now, and as Jana said, it is absolutely right that that creates a comms problem for the chancery, which the chancery won't resolve by being as ultra cautious in its messaging as it has been. That's something they're going to have to rein in. Otherwise, it will drive them and they'll be at its mercy for the foreseeable future. Jana, is that, is that about right, do you think? I mean, you're the one sitting in Berlin. Oh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so I think that the chancellor needs to step up more also on the EU level, because um, I think what Merkel, I mean, the strange thing is Merkel did all these things too, right? She supported Nord Stream 2. She was against uh, delivering weapons to Ukraine. Um, but still, I mean, she had she had done a lot of other things. I mean, she brought the EU together after uh, 2014, the annexation um, of Crimea. And, and she was basically the leading voice in Europe. And I think it's not only because the Russians don't want to talk to the Europeans and they don't take them seriously. It's also because there is at the moment no real leadership coming from Berlin, I have to say, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the other thing that 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 really sort of enrages me about these uh, loose remarks from uh, the parliamentary groups or from the leaders of the of the conservative opposition um, is that uh, they really ought to know better. Uh, that Germany has a crucial role to play here in, in, in maintaining European cohesion and that they're undercutting the work of their own government. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, the conservatives who've just been in power for 16 years uh, and who have strong views on this know exactly that what the government is trying to do here is what they would be doing if they were in power. So um, it's, it's irresponsible of them to talk in this way. Um, one one word, perhaps, on the admiral, or right. do we want to leave the admiral out of consideration? No, go um, ahead, Constanza. So, so the story of the admiral, the um, the admiral with the unfortunate views and the unfortunate inability to read his own invitation, which my Indian friends tell me said very clearly that his remarks would be live streamed. <laughs> um, you know, spoke in front of the, his Indian peers in a way that you wouldn't want any German officer at any time to think or speak. <laughs> um, and I have to say, what concerns me most, apart from the fact that the Admiral couldn't just read his own invitation and his staff apparently didn't either. I mean, if I were his ADC, I would have made a flying tackle for him and wrested the microphone from his, from his hand, right? Right. In other words, this was a total failure of an entire delegation. And in that case, what I'm asking myself is, who vetted this man to become Navy chief in the first place, if those are his views? And it confirms my, my, my unfortunate conviction that, that the, the, the leadership of the German armed forces and the civilian leadership of the defense ministry 
ought to do a much stronger job of looking at the mindsets of senior military leadership and ruthlessly weeding out people with right-wing attitudes. I mean, honestly, if I were in a position of responsibility, I would go there through there with a steel, you know, um, with a steel broom. Yep. But not that I will be or anyone is going to ask me, but but that's my <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, if I could jump in, I, I know you've probably got some questions too, but we don't have a whole lot of time. But but what I would ask is this. Uh, the cacophony and the and the back and forth and the backpedaling and forward pedaling that you all have been talking about in Berlin, I mean, um, th that's happening, of course, in a lot of different uh, uh, capitals too. Uh, but I know it's particularly acute in Berlin. But let me ask you, do you think that cacophony now might come together a bit if Putin goes into Ukraine big, I mean, if, if we have we see ourselves watching CNN and we see these, you know, missile strikes, airstrikes, uh, whatever it might be. And do you think the voice coming out of Berlin would be more unified that the actions of Putin will will bring a unity to the voices and to uh, a, 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 a policy that might be more forward leaning? Uh, by the chancellor than we're seeing now. And that would kind of resolve a lot of the back and forth uh, of these past few days and a very powerful and forward leaning uh, approach would, we would see come out of Berlin. Do you think that could happen if, if Putin goes in? Jana, what do you think? So I don't see Berlin being an outlier in a kind of united Western response. I see yeah. us in that case really um, standing with our allies um, and uh, taking action. But at the same time, I mean, Jim, you, you spoke about uh, a clear act of aggression, um, but I think many here wonder what would happen if we would see kind of a small kind type of aggression, something that we've seen uh, in Crimea in 2014 or later in the Donbass. So I think there are some people here worried kind of, where the red line would be um, and, and when to activate basically the sanctions package, but not only within Germany, I think uh, more broadly in, in the European Union and maybe even in the United States, because one thing needs to be clear. I mean, when we talk Nord Stream 2 or sanctions, the moment Vladimir Putin uses energy as a weapon, this is really, really comes at huge costs for Europe. Um, and Basically, yeah, it's winter out there and we will all be freezing. And I think the yeah. the domestic debate, not only in Germany, but also in, in Europe, um, will be difficult um, if it's not a clear cut case that yes. politicians yes. can make. And I think that is my biggest worry. But right. I really, I mean, the, as I said in the beginning, the SPD is already more closely aligned when it comes to messaging. And the thing is, how I sense it here in Berlin is that and I think that's different to the United States is that people don't really expect this to happen. I think the majority here still thinks an intervention is not likely. And this is kind of, we can, negoti we can negotiate us out of this situation and we should discuss how to do this best and focus on this. So the worst case scenario is not really, I mean, maybe that's different uh, in the chancellery and, and the machinery uh, Constanza talked about, but the broader, Berlin bubble, the public bubble, the, the policy bubble here um, is not really thinking worst case scenarios through, I think. 
So here's my take on this. Um, I find it really hard to reconcile the ultimatum that the Kremlin set uh, the US and the West in those two drafts, which are outrageous and are unacceptable, and the continued inflow of combat forces into the theater surrounding Ukraine on the north, the south, and the east, and three fronts, um, reconcilable with a sophisticated Kremlin strategy, strategy that would attempt to achieve political goals with military threats, but threats that are ultimately not acted upon. Yeah, I that agree may with you, still, yeah, that may still be what the Kremlin is trying to do. The problem is that the array of forces that we're seeing right now drives up the temperature in the theater and maximizes the risk of miscalculation and accidental escalation. Right. That's, that's where we're at, which is why it is. it would be a huge mistake for the West not to do contingency planning. And it seems to me that the fact that not just the US, but now also the German foreign ministry is telling the, mem the, the families of embassy staff and, and German NGOs that they may leave Kiev and be repatriated is indicative that we are beginning to think about contingency planning, right? But at so the same time, the German, story. sorry, Constanza, but at the same yeah. time, I think nobody really prepares the German public for this. So when yes. you look at, I don't know, the political talk shows and all of this, it's all about right. Corona and, yeah. and domestic uh, topics. So I, I agree with you that I think the situation is worsening, but I don't see politicians preparing the, yes. the, yeah, the, the public. Yeah. What, what that yeah. would mean, actually, that this would and not be, I don't know, some small accident happening far away from Germany, but that this was would have really severe consequences. Right. And this is this is this could catch up with them. And we've been um, I'm unfortunately somewhat older than than Jana. So I was as a as a beginner journalist, you know, lived through the entire Yugoslav wars. Actually, I was from Somalia to Afghanistan, all of it. And, and I, I unfortunately have a great deal of experience with this kind of sort of the German, German public debates, you know, catching up because of being mugged by reality. Yeah. Right. Um, I, you know, in my view, we ought to have learned for the, from this, but apparently we haven't. I also, I mean, there is generational change in, in politics and it's worth keeping in mind that a lot of the, the, the decision makers here and the parliamentary, and the parliamentary groups um, are, are in their 40s and didn't experience this. So this is actually new to them. So my, you know, my general advice in this situation would be, you know, is to, um, I don't know. Um, I can understand frustration in other Western capitals about, about the cacophony in Berlin right now, but I would cut them some slack. I would help them think this through and I would advise them based on their own experiences 10, 20 years ago. Right. That's what I would do. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you, Constanza. I don't think we're looking at a quote unquote minor incursion. I mean, your point is right on looking at what the yeah. Kremlin is looking to accomplish. You're they're not going to be able to do that, I think, unless they topple the Zelensky government and or right. they assemble right. a significant threat 
to overtake Kiev in order to then try to extract concessions from Kiev in the West. So I think, you know, I, I've almost moved on from this fear of alliance in action at the low end of the spectrum, because I think it's looking like we're going to be at the upper end. And your point about not preparing publics, I think is spot on. It's not really, it's beginning to happen here in the U.S., but I I think we're going to be at this high end and it's going to just be a question. I think Jim's point, we're going to wake up one day and we are going to be amazed, I think, by by what we see on the TV screen and what's happening there. And the risk of paralysis and inaction, I think, is is where, you know, I'm I'm concerned about that. And and your point, too, about the importance of pre-positioning. Finally, we see the Biden administration talking about reinforcing the the eastern flank and starting to get ready um, because because I think that that says a lot about where they see the trajectory headed as well. So maybe one final point, if I may, um, because I'm the one sitting in Washington here um, compared to Yana, and that is that I keep a close eye on the restraint crowd here in Washington. And it strikes me as important to not underrate its influence. Because there is, um, while the administration, I think, has been very good in all this, there are um, sort of retardant moments, as it were, coming out of the larger political debate. If you look at, say, the commentary of the Quincy Institute, um, if you look at the folks advising the GOP on strategy and international security, or the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I mean, you see either sort of cliches, you know, like the Germans are all in the hands of Russia or in the pockets of Russia, or you see a, this is none of our business and we should be staying well out of that, let this, let, this, let this be Europe's problem. And and I would expect in the case of a worsening conflict, the the temperature of the, uh, or the, the impact of those voices to rise as well. And then, then the administration will have its own um, backyard problem to contend with. That's right. And but but that is but the reason I'm saying that is not to throw that back at you, Jim and Andrea. But but I've been saying that in Berlin and say, listen, if you think, you know, that your very close cooperation with the White House is what it's going to be like, keep in mind that they have immense domestic pressures and a midterm election, and do not think that you are not going to have to do more because you you are going to have to cover for a lot more than you did in the Yugoslav wars uh, or in Afghanistan. So that's another reason to be very well prepared and to prepare the public. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I agree. I, I think that um, what was interesting to me particularly was the uh, awakening over the weekend at Camp David where the Biden administration suddenly shifted to uh, this talk about sending U.S. forces back in and and doing things I had written an article about in Foreign Affairs that I thought they would never do, and I I couldn't woke up I couldn't believe it, and so I think for sure, uh, you know, it's, I would l- love to know what they know. What was it that tipped them to go in that direction? Because uh, I uh, I just Constanza I I agree I I don't think we're ready in terms of our publics, and I think there is a group here in Washington that's that um, you know they're you know they're still they're still in wishful thinking mode as well and uh we'll just have to see i mean andrea what do you think no i mean that's i i think we need to prepare for the worst because it's increasingly looking more like more and more likely i think the administration and kind of starting to do the pre-positioning is reading the writing on the wall and seeing where this is headed and we sure as heck better be ready 
There's lots of ways that this can test NATO. Um, you know, thinking about, you know, if the Russian military overruns Ukrainian forces and you have Ukrainian fighters and they retreat to Poland and Romania and launch attacks on Russia from there, there could be errant shelling that fall into NATO territory. I mean, we really need to be prepared as an alliance because this is, you know, these are plausible, um, I would say likely events. Um, and so that we would need to be prepared in order to do that. So I think the administration is reading the writing on the wall and we're moving towards a situation, not of the deter, but to contain, make ensure that this conflict stays contained to Ukraine um, and to shore up and reassure allies and to manage now what is likely to be a significant crisis, whether it's refugees and pre-positioning humanitarian aid. I think we're shifting into the next phase of this right. conflict. Right. And I think, you know, that it's really, again, bringing allies along and ensuring that we're remaining coordinated and cohesive is going to be key. And I sure hope that we can, can do that. All right. So on that cheery note, yeah. um, thank you for doing this. I think you've addressed so many kind of questions and issues and the context and helps people understand all of what you said, the, the dialing up and walking back and the cacophony that was coming out of Berlin. So really thanks for doing this. Um, and uh, I have a feeling we'll be doing it again in the, in the coming weeks.